Hello and welcome to the second episode of IPA Victoria's series of interviews on the subject of well-being in public sector workplaces, which has been developed in partnership with the People and Culture Community of Practice at IPA Victoria. I'm Nick Basto, and in the first episode of this series, we asked Professor Deborah Blackman and Dr Fiona Buick, who are both from the School of Business at the University of New South Wales in Canberra, to give us an overview about what we know about well-being. In that discussion, they looked at some of the theoretical ideas that underpin the concept of well-being, the importance of understanding the distinction between hedonic and eudaimonic well-being, and what the research tells us about where we should focus our efforts if we want to improve well-being in public sector workplaces. In this episode, we'll look at how to put those insights into practice. You'll hear about the mistakes or misconceptions that Deborah Blackman and Fiona Buick see people making when they start thinking about developing workplace well-being programs. How they think we can flip the script about well-being, away from being just about low well-being leading to low performance, to instead seeing the possibility of improved levels of well-being being linked to high performance. And their top tips on who some of the most influential thinkers and writers about well-being are. But we begin this episode by talking about why well-being programs can't just be left to people and culture groups or organisational leaders. There's a crucial role to be played at the team level by an incredibly important but often underappreciated group of public servants, managers. And so I began by asking Professor Deborah Blackman about what we know about public service managers and their ability to add well-being onto the range of other responsibilities that they already have. It's totally reasonable to say most people get promoted to be managers because they were really good at their technical skills. And one of my favorite ever quotes, um, and I will not say the organization because it'd be unkind, but was where they, the, um, I was told that the real problem is that the managers don't really like talking to people and they've got to talk to people who don't like talking to people about something neither of them would like to discuss. And that's why it's not going very well at the moment. And it was such a, a thought-provoking statement because it was so true. You know, not they, the people who've been promoted were very, very skilled at what they did, but it wasn't for people management. And so there's no question that what we're asking is for people, is for the managers to have high levels of people skills if they're going to support the kind of well-being that we're talking about here. And the reality is it's not something that many are developed for. And so when you're thinking about people and culture groups, one of the things to be thinking about is what is the development that, that they are actually enabling managers to do? And I know lots of people will be saying, oh, well, we do leadership courses. Yes, there's lots of leadership courses. There are far fewer management courses, interestingly enough, and very few well-being management courses that are not about mental health first aid. And so if we want to start thinking in terms, again, in terms of systems and where can we put something called a lever, which is that then moves the system, that is where there's a huge capacity. And I'm not going to hand over to Fee because she's just been doing a huge research um, project in this area. So she's right across it. Certainly, Nick, like validating what you said as well about the critical role that managers play. So they, they play a critical role in change. They play a critical role in culture and culture transmission because they're the people that employees have the most frequent contact with. So that's where they get their signals from in terms of, well, what are the behaviours that are being role modelled? And so there's, there's immense uh, responsibility on their shoulders and, and certainly a question Debbie and I are sitting in at the moment is, well, who's supporting the managers beyond training? 
So training is a really important part, but it's the broader spectrum of support. So we're expecting managers who are promoted based on their task competence and, and many, many brilliant people were promoted to managers. That doesn't necessarily translate to managerial capability or people focus. And that's where in all of the projects we've undertaken, we've seen no surprise, huge inconsistencies in terms of managerial practice. But they carry this, this massive, massive responsibility for change, culture, employee well-being, employee satisfaction, and so forth. So, so certainly something that we're stepping into a space with now is, well, how can we better support managers to be able to realise their potential as managers and support their staff, but also make sure that their well-being is front and foremost in, in senior managers' minds as well. And I think certainly thinking, when you think about how, how deeply embedded culture is, it can't just be the responsibility of people and culture teams. It has to be a whole of organisation focus and a whole of organisation commitment. And, and that's really where we're talking significant change here that, that you know, is possible, but just has to be managed very carefully, but also keeping in mind rather than blaming managers or saying, well, managers have to do X, Y, Z, well, how are we equipping them mm. to be able to do that? And how are we creating the space and the time? And you think about, you asked Debbie about COVID, you think about how many managers not only were fulfilling their own responsibilities, every single week having one-on-one chats with their employees to make sure that their well-being was maintained and that issues were addressed, but then what happens then? Then they end up having to undertake their own work at nighttime, late nights, burnout. It's a whole raft of things going on. So I think that's there's a lot of space um, here for, for thinking about how we can do things differently. Fiona, you talked a little bit before about, um, we've mentioned in passing, I guess, things like uh, fruit boxes, but we've also talked about the sort of the, the dangers of sort of parceling off um, uh well-being programs either the individual or thinking that culture change is just um, a function for people and culture groups. I'm wondering if there are other sort of mistakes or misconceptions that you see people make um, when they start thinking about workplace well-being. I think probably, and Debbie might have more informed views of this, but I think it, I think it is just the, the narrow focus on, on mental health or on physical health um, is probably what I see to be the greatest misconception um, misconception of, of well-being um, and this is why I was particularly attracted to the idea of eudaimonic well-being um, when I'm because I'm working on a paper that will get published one day but um, <laughs> it, it, it's really focusing on those more sort of psychological aspects of of well-being which you know if if organizations or if if senior managers HR teams and managers can all work together and individuals can work together um, to, to really focus on that particular component of well-being, I think would go a long way. But what I would see from the outside is that there is probably a lack of focus on just how important that that is for well-being. But Debbie, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I would agree with you entirely. I think part of it, being honest, is that the eudaimonic well-being is much more complex to manage because you've got to understand what each individual finds important. You've got to work out how the different tensions in your teams work together. Because one of the one of the things we haven't talked about yet today is we tend to talk about managers and we tend to talk about employees, with the unit of analysis being the organization and the manager, and then the individual. But most of the time, most people are working in groups and teams. And so 
that has a, that puts another layer of complexity on the problem because it means that you might be able to support one person, but to do that, it means that somebody else can't do what they want. Or and this is the issue around flexible work at the moment, which is well, it's great, but you can't say to everybody, well, you can all do that because you know it's a nice idea but you know let's take we work in a university it'd be lovely if everybody could have friday off but the timetable will not allow that so no um so there's some realities about work which mean that we have to think about the team and and how that works and that then makes it harder for people to organize these things so i think it's about the the once you start to unpack it, the realization that if you if you concentrate on mental health and physical health, actually, that's relatively easy to start to think of things that you can do to support it. Once you think about it in terms of long term, purposeful work, long term, um, you know, always being able to manage people's futures, that's an, an enabling, you know, that classic line, you know, bring your best self to work. Well, that's great. But what does that actually mean? How can you how can you do that? Well, that's when you can see why your work is is useful, et cetera, et cetera. And that's much more complex to manage. The other thing we have to remember is that most of the time we're holding managers responsible for getting the work done. And then we expect them to do the other things as well. One of the simplest things we can do, and it might sound obvious, but it's not there at the moment, is actually making it a really clear accountability. And part of what we talk about is to say this is one of your jobs this is what it looks like if it's successful we expect you to be doing that now how do we make that part of what you do at the moment it's in the other duties as required bucket and therefore is always falling off the bottom because let's face it the other duties as required bucket is a very large one um so some of this is about putting these things front and center and changing the conversations that we have around them Lots of the discussion about well-being is framed in the sort of negative context of sort of that that lack of well-being is linked to low performance. But some of what's happened in COVID has actually been a positive story for some people at work and has actually led to higher performance. And I'm wondering, that is an area that I know you've had a long-term interest in is sort of what is it that encourages high performance in public sector workplaces? And I'm wondering if based on what's happened in COVID, you can see some of those ideas then playing out in, in practice in terms of the people that have found some advantage in, in what's happened over the last two years? I think it goes back to what Debbie said before about how COVID created the opportunity to shift mindsets about, well, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? What's our priority? Which really, in my mind, one of the things we've found is pivotal to high performance is role clarity and understanding why your work matters. And I know I sound like I'm repeating myself, but really they were the two of the key aspects of high performance and Debbie will talk about them, many others. Um, But because there's been this opportunity to really stop and reflect and think, well, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? What's important? That can really create the space or pave the way for higher levels of of performance rather than just running around in the wrap, sort of in in the hamster wheel. Um, So I think that's where there has been enormous scope for that. And also I think with flexible working, having a greater degree of choice as to where and when you work. So when can you do your most productive thinking work? And for some people as well, like Debbie, it's late at night, um, where that's where your brain functions fundamentally better. So if you're able to reconfigure your work, not only what you do, but how you do it, 
can really shape or in, encourage high performance in ways that we may not have seen before. Now over to you, Debbie. No, no, but I think that's important. And there's some research that's going to come out soon, which is talking about the different patterns of working and how people chose very different times. And, you know, the, there was time in the when it was like, well, no, we have to have core hours of between seven and seven. We shouldn't be allowing people to start early. We shouldn't be starting late. And it's like, um, actually, it's becoming really clear that that's not necessarily the way we need to think about this, that we need to be asking, well, why are people doing things at that time of night? Is it just because they couldn't fit it in any other time? Or as is looking possible, that's actually when they discovered they work best. And so they wanted to think those three. So that's definitely part of it. I think coming back to the high performance part of your question, um, one of the things is that the, the high performance comes from a whole bunch of different things, but most of them are around people. So it's about being able to take participation in, in decision making. It's about walking the talk. It's about being seen to be authentic. It's about um, <clears throat> communication. It's about learning. There's a whole bunch of different things. And so all of those are around people. So when we look at how do we achieve high performance, we have to recognize that people, it's the decisions that people take, right? So if you think about agency, everybody has, they all have to make decisions every day. And you make choices in those decisions and you have an agency around how much you do and don't do. One of the things we found with COVID is in the first situation anyway, it comes back to this purpose. People could see in many cases where we see, saw the productivity go up, how important their jobs were for the future of people around Australia. I mean, you know, some of the things that some of the agencies managed, organizations managed to achieve in such a short period of time was extraordinary. Um, and, you know, the, the universities as well. I mean, I know one university had got a plan to do teaching online and they had a four-year schedule and they thought they might get it done by then and they managed it in two weeks. So the things you can do when you have to are extraordinary. But then we have to recognize that that then comes with an, an enormous amount of mental capacity, which is then part of the burnout problem. Um, and so there is this very strong relationship between well-being and purpose, but the most that in high performance, the for me, the most useful thing is not that low will but low well-being will lead to lower performance, but the capacity for great well-being to lead to high performance because the things that are creating it again it comes back to difference the things that lead to poor performance are usually being too tired being burnt out um, poor supervision whatever it may be the things that lead to high performance are quite different and as Fee said they're about purpose they're about clarity it's about feeling worthwhile it's the difference between the eudaimonic and the hegemonic. they are very different triggers and so if we think about it that way we can start seeing why this differentiation is so important for high performance. Well, on that question of, I suppose, the differentiation and recognise sort of that, those insights, I'm going to ask you both in conclusion what you think are some websites or individuals or research that you think public service practitioners with a professional interest in well-being should be following or should be thinking about in, in doing their work. I have a list of core authors that I always look up their work. Um, so just to rattle off some names, which I'll provide the resources um, to make available. Um, we've got Richard Ryan and Edward Desi, who are well known in academia. They've um, developed a few theories that are widely used. Um, Ed Diner and Carol Riff and her colleagues. So there's a group of people who really are focusing on, and also Cossack as well. 
Um, so these it's the, sort of there's there's a group of people who have really sort of unpacked what what well-being is and focused on sort of the eudaimonic, hedonic, sort of psychological, subjective well-being, um, which I think if public, se public sector practitioners really want to know more about this, I know academic articles and everything, but um, just just reading about, about the different types and then trying to think about, well, how can we integrate some of these ideas into our practices to try and optimise well-being, I think would go a long way. Deborah. Yeah, for me, I think it's useful. Obviously, we come at it from a slightly different angle. And I think quite a lot of the work health and safety websites are now thinking of these things from systems perspectives far more. And so we're beginning to see a shift in what they're talking about. So, you know, we know from, you know, that they will talk about systems and how no accident has one cause. So, you know, if you go onto any of the the health and safety sites, they talk about that. And they're now beginning to talk in the same way about psychological well-being. So I would go and look at all the, you know, Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, they've all got very big health and, uh, health and safety work um, place sites now, which are shifting in what they talk about. So I think that's a really useful thing to think about. The other thing, if I would always say, if anybody is faintly interested in systems, the book, the, the, the first book to read is by Danella Meadows. It's called Thinking in Systems. Um, it's the one we use for teaching and the students find it really accessible. And chapter five talks about system traps and why things get stuck. And if it's the only thing you read about systems ever, I strongly recommend that one. Deborah, you've been exceptionally modest too, because you should all, I feel that another area that people should be thinking about is, of course, um, <laughs> a public sector research group that looks at the particular issues that, that the public sector faces. So, Well, I was going to say that Fiona will be publishing a report soon, which has got quite a lot of these kind of things in it as well. So yes, we've got quite a lot of work. But yes, the public service research group um, focuses a lot on these areas. We've got... Um, Associate Professor Sharon O'Neill does a lot of work in this in this space, particularly she, she does work in the mental health space, but very much in the um, it all fits in together. And she's done a lot of work for New South Wales. Obviously, Fiona's doing a lot of work with um, flexible working with a, with a large team. And between us, we've done quite a bit on this before. So, yes. But we wanted to talk about others first. Well, Professor Deborah Blackman and Dr Fiona Buick, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. That brings us to the end of this second part of our discussion on well-being. On the News and Resources page of the IPA Victoria website, you can find links to some of the important research and thinkers that Deborah and Fiona mentioned, as well as Deborah and Fiona's Twitter handles if you want to stay in touch with their work. This series is being developed by the People and Culture Community of Practice at IPA Victoria, and it'll be exploring the perspectives of people and culture professionals, showcasing examples of workplace wellbeing initiatives, and creating space to discuss the broader themes and systemic issues that underpin well-being in the workplace. If you'd like to know more about this work, then visit the News and Resources section on IPA Victoria's website for more information, which is at vic.ipaa.org.au. IPA Victoria is Victoria's peak public sector professional association, and it aims to connect, empower and celebrate Victoria's public purpose sector. You can stay in touch with what we do by following us on LinkedIn at IPAA Victoria or on Twitter at IPAA VIC. 
This program is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'm Nick Basto, and thanks for listening.